Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Look, February is American Heart Month. Many of you have heard me talk about my family, and the history of heart disease in my family. It started for me at a young age. My favorite uncle, the youngest of his brothers, died from a massive heart attack out of nowhere. Best physically fit guy. My dad, then my stepmom, almost immediately out of nowhere as it seems. So my honoring of American Heart Month is for all of us, all of you, And what you should know now, what you should know now about this and COVID-19. Joining me today is Dr. Clyde Yancey, Chief Chief of Cardiology at Northwestern Medicine, Associate Director of the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute, Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And today's conversation is seriously important, but also hopeful. Dr. Yancey, it's great to have you here today. Dr. Pat, I'm delighted to be with you. Wow, what a powerful testimonial. You really set the stage correctly. Heart disease can be so unpredictable. It can have such consequence, but I'm delighted that we're going to talk about things that offer so much hope. So thank you for this opportunity. And I do say that because, you know, we have by far, since my uncle's passing, uh, we have learned so much Fast forward us to where we are today uh, as to what you all have learned and what you all are, let's just say, taking a really deeper dive to look at for heart patients, especially given where we are with the uh, COVID-19 complications. I think this is really one of the scariest things for people that already are looking at how to take great care of their heart. So, Dr. Pad, you're right. It's almost overwhelming. We're already living in a world where we're ever aware of the risk for heart disease. We hear about diet and exercise and not smoking and having a a good weight and knowing your family history and knowing your cholesterol, all these numbers, and they do matter. But then COVID-19 shows up, and even though it started out as pneumonia, you know what, Dr. Pat, we're learning that there are multiple consequences of COVID-19 infection including cardiovascular consequences. But please, I don't want people to throw their hands up in despair and say, there's nothing that can be done. There's a lot that can be done. First, be aware. We know that persons who have pre-existing, that is already established heart disease, high blood pressure, even heart attacks in the past, heart failure, we know they are at greater risk for getting the novel coronavirus infection, which then leads to COVID-19. And we also know, unfortunately, that the complications happen more likely. So if you know you're at greater risk, you're more vigilant about protecting yourself. Next, we know that down the road, even if your COVID-19 experience was mild, didn't even get hospitalized, just went home for quarantine, there's still the risk for cardiac involvement, the 
medical literature has developed pathways, evidence, signs to show that some people end up with evidence of cardiac involvement. Mm. We don't know the full extent of those consequences, but we do know that we should be aware. And here's the super short version on that, Dr. Pat. If you've had COVID-19 and you think you're recovering, but you still have some residual shortness of breath, that's not benign. Talk to someone. It could be leftover from a lung infection, but it could be a tip that there's a cardiac issue. The good news is that heart attacks as a result of COVID-19 are infrequent. They can't occur because it causes blood clotting. And the heart has to work super hard when you're trying to overcome a serious infection. And that can mimic a heart attack. And we also know that there is on occasion the likelihood that the virus may directly target the heart. Again, infrequent. So right now we're in an active learning mode. But by all means, if you have questions, raise them. If you know you already have heart disease, be particularly careful. And one more thing, Dr. Pat, if you know you have heart disease, get to the front of the line for the vaccines. And, you know, this is, I think, one of the most um, serious messages out there today. Um, and, you know, I found something really interesting about this, and I'm hoping that your profession can help. You know, we've been advocates for information around COVID-19 and trying to provide people with the resources they need. But this is one of these scenarios where we have to help others do this, um, get to the front of the line. And, you know, folks don't realize that because they have this existing condition, they can go to the front of the line. And isn't that one of the most important messages we can give people today is for them to know that you, you're really in that first or second group? That's exactly right, Dr. Pat. First, we need to be very plain spoken about this. Everyone needs to heed the advice to undergo vaccination. And as we can provide more vaccines to more people, if a vaccine is available to you, take it. But particularly, if you fall on the CDC list as someone at higher risk, you've heard about the tiers 1A, 1B, yep. 2, et cetera. If you fall in those tiers, don't dismiss that. Get your number, get in line, get your vaccination, whether it's through your hospital system. Vaccines are now going to be distributed directly to drugstores. Get your number, get in line, and particularly if you know you're at one of the higher risk groups, please get that number early, get that vaccination early, get that date for the second vaccination early. And, you know, you said something earlier, and I want to jump back to it because somebody actually made a comment to me about this the other day. I'm not sure if it was during one of my shows or during one of the breaks. Um, and it was kind of like this, Dr. Yancy. It was kind of like, you know, COVID-19, we know, affects a lot of things, but we haven't really seen a direct effect to this, 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 and this. And, and they're talking about certain organs. And, and here's the thing we need to talk about with COVID-19 and the heart. As with many other diseases, it could be Lyme disease. It doesn't matter. It could be, you know, what we learned about HIV and AIDS. The heart works so hard, doesn't it? It just works so hard. Well, Dr. Pat, you have such a clear understanding of what we're talking about. Let's consider this. There are three ways at a minimum that the heart can be involved. First, just because of the work required to overcome shock, overcome a serious infection, if the heart is older, there's already pre-existing disease, that extra work is going to put an extra strain on the heart. That's intuitive, that's easy for anyone to appreciate. Second, we know that this condition, COVID-19, amongst all the different organs it affects, guess what, Dr. Pat? It affects the blood and yes. it makes the blood stickier and it leads to blood clots and blood clots lead to heart attacks. And then third, 
we know that there is, in fact, some evidence that on rare occasion, the virus can get inside the heart Mm -hmm. and start replicating in the heart and can cause an actual inflammation of the heart. That doesn't seem to be the common representation when this cardiac involvement is just an inflammatory signal. But nevertheless, there are at least three specific ways this can happen. So knowledge is our first weapon. Being very actively aware of these complications is our second weapon, but nothing's better than prevention. And it starts with good public health things and the vaccine. Um, I, I want to, before we, uh, we forget, I want to, I want to let folks know, please tell them how they can find out more about what we're talking about today. Cause there's so much that you all are providing. We're just really skimming the surface on a lot of it. How do people find out more? Right. This may be the most important service we can provide to your listeners today. Let's talk about trusted sources of information Yeah. regarding COVID-19. I strongly advocate going to cdc.com, cdc.com, search covid That's trusted, reliable, scientifically valid, fully vetted information. For things related to heart disease, particularly during Heart Month, go to AmericanHeart.org, American Heart Association, AmericanHeart.org. Our own website, NorthwesternMedicine.org, is simply NM.org. You go there, boom, COVID pops up right away. Go NM.org, cardiology, my whole group pops up. We do our very best to put relevant easy to understand, defensible, trusted information. But go to sites that you can trust. Your own local hospitals do the same thing. But really, go to sites you can trust where you know that professionals that are worried and concerned about your health have curated the information and made it available to you. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about one other thing before you, you have to run, and it's this point. I recently had a hospital experience. I I got a long-awaited and much, much needed uh, knee replacement, total knee replacement. And, uh, you know, as an athlete, I just destroyed my knees. You know, (laughs) we don't pay attention. You know, for men that are athletes, they go out there and they know what to do. They ice their knees. But for women, we just get, we're just like warriors. We're like diving and we're just crushing it. (laughs) Um, But here's what I want to say. I had the same, what do we want to call it? Reluctance to go to the hospital. And I know that this is real for people. I, this is not even being talked about enough. I know when people are afraid and let's say you have a chest pain, let's say there's something that's just not right with you. The first thought is I'm afraid if I go to the hospital, I got to tell you, maybe this is different here where I live, but boy, I have never felt so safe in a hospital in my life. Uh, These folks are like, nobody gets in without a mask. You better be wearing it. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like how together the hospital staff, especially where I went at Evergreen here in the Pacific Northwest, aren't hospitals and staff members, haven't they really stepped up to protect patients? And I think that's what we're not talking about enough. Well, Dr. Pat, there's so much good stuff to unpack there. First, I hope that the knee operation has gone very well in your rehab. Oh my God, yeah. And let let me applaud you for the lifestyle and active, lifelong (laughs) exercising experience that's the way towards longevity. And let me just reassure you that maybe it was knees for you, but it's hip for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. But let's get more serious about what yep. you've discussed. Yep. I want to acknowledge the fact 
that the issue on the table is fear. We don't need to step away from it. We don't need nope. to be afraid to say it. There is fear that if you go someplace where you know there are a lot of people who have COVID-19, are you going to get it? Well, guess what? In all of these many months we've been dealing with COVID-19, the one place where a super spreader event has never been identified is a hospital. Yep. And it's exactly for the reasons that you've articulated. I have never seen a more brave, more courageous more come together response than what I've seen in the healthcare community. 100% compliance with masks and hand washing. Hospitals have been to the point where you can't walk through the door without having your temperature checked, without putting a mask on. Once we ramped up supplies for PPE, they've been utilized and we've been able to consistently provide not just good care, but excellent care no matter who walks in the door, we're able to provide mm -hmm. a COVID unit so we can provide great care for COVID patients, but we still function, do the things we need to do. Here's the sobering part of this. You and I are talking about orthopedic stuff for those of us that are clinging to our desire to still be athletic, <laughs> but I'm talking about life and death. We can yep. recite the numbers that we've lost due to COVID-19. Yep. Dr. Pat, triple those numbers, triple Horrible. those numbers. That's been the excess deaths during this COVID-19 experience precisely because people are having heart attacks at home, strokes at home, other infections at home, dying of sepsis at home because they're afraid to go to the hospital and not once have we identified a super spreader event at a hospital. Think about that. And that's really why I wanted to bring it up today. I know that there's a lot of directions we can go with this really short interview, but this is what I think is one of the most undiscussed conversations of COVID-19, and it's real. Uh, I know that those of you listening, the fear of COVID-19 and how it's transmitted, it's real. So both myself and Dr. Yancey, we're not dismissing that. What we're talking about is, for me, a personal experience. And then for you, looking at the, the idea that if your chest is hurting, if there's pain in it, if there's something that's off, there is a place for you to go. And isn't that part of the message with this month in February is to give people hope, but also give them uh, possibilities in action, doctor. Isn't that true as well? That is 100% true. And remember the idea of going to the office, going to the hospital is multidimensional now. Yeah. So many institutions have established virtual formats, video conferencing, Zoom calls with patients, just the plain old telephone. You know, we have this invention. It's been around a long time. <laughs> it's called the telephone. Pick it I up. I know. I work call for the, the phone company. Talk to nurse. <laughs> yeah. And say, I have a question. Just say, I have a question. There yeah. is no question that's not worth bringing to someone's attention. It's the question you don't raise that can lead to the bad outcomes. You know, doctor, I want to thank you so much for this. I know you've got to run two different interviews. Again, please tell people how they can find out more. And then I would love to know your personal message. What do you want to leave everyone with today? So the important resource for everyone to consider is northwesternmedicine.org because we have both COVID information and heart disease information right there front and center. But I think the important message that I want to give everyone today is don't despair. There is reason for hope. We don't have to die from heart disease. We know how to treat it. We know how to prevent it. We know what causes it. And we don't need to let COVID-19 continue to wreck our life and living circumstances. Take advantage of what we've learned. Understand how to protect yourself from getting the infection. Realize the vaccines are safe. They're effective. And they are our pathway forward and understand the importance of information and dialogue. 
if we can just keep those messages clear, don't despair. There is hope for both heart disease and COVID-19. We can get to a better life. It will happen soon. Oh, thank you so much for uh, absolutely doing these interviews. And if I might say something, for those of you out there that you know you have friends or loved ones that already are in a condition where heart disease is in your family and you know someone, please look out for them. Please look for the signs. Please get educated. Please do that because you may make the difference. Dr. Yancey, thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Pat. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you all. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. www.nicb.org. Write this down. www.nicb.org. Now, you guys have heard me talk about a lot of things that have happened in my life. But one of the things that happened to me, as many of you, millions of you have had happen, is so invasive. It puts you at such a place of insecurity that you just don't know how the heck did that happen. Have you ever had your car broken into? Have you ever had your car stolen? Have you ever gotten to your car and all of a sudden the door is like jammed open or maybe something's dented underneath the car? Something odd. Somebody has messed with your car. And you think to yourself, you got to be kidding. What the, could they possibly want? But wait a minute. It's okay. I lease my car. No, wait. I own my car. Besides all of that, what David Glowey is going to talk to us about today, President and CEO for the National Insurance Crime Bureau, NICB, National Insurance Crime Bureau, is beyond the emotional impact and shock of your baby literally being ravaged for a piece of hardware. But guess what? You're not alone. Hundreds of thousands in 2020. Let's talk to David. David, I know this wasn't probably the angle you wanted to talk about, but I got to tell you, for me, it was one of the most invasive things that I and I had my car in New York City for like, I don't know how many years. And I moved to the West Coast to go back to school. And my beautiful 300Z, I came out and it looked like somebody was eating, eating it like a piece of cake. How can we share with our folks today what the trends are and what they can do so we don't feel like victims? Sure, Dr. Pat. Uh, really, really, uh, it's a pleasure to be to be on your show. Um, so I was the Undersecretary for Intelligence at the Department of Homeland Security up until June, um, and I've been almost 30 years in law enforcement and in, in national security, just looking at crime trends and threats to the United States. And it's quite staggering, the numbers regarding auto thefts, carjackings um, during the pandemic. We're up almost 9.2% over last year. Um, and since June, we're up anywhere from 10 to 18% nationwide. And certain metropolitan areas are well over 20, 30, 40%. Uh, it's tremendous. And what you're talking about, and I've spoken about this in my prior capacity, is when you're a victim of a crime, any crime, it's the worst day of your life. It's, the, yeah. it's that day that you, it's just awful. And you're explaining that. And, and our job at the National Insurance Crime Bureau and law enforcement is to try to prevent the worst day from happening in your life and do everything we can. And with this, it starts with good personal security, where you park your vehicle, well-lit areas, have good natural surveillance, 
take your key fob with you. Believe it or not, Dr. Pat, people still leave their keys in their car. A lot of the car key fob is an easy, it really, you should shake your head, but that's really how these are happening. Um, personal security is critical to this. And if you see something suspicious, say something, call 911, call the police department right away and report the crime. Yeah, no, you're preaching to the choir, but not really, because I'm one of those people. I, I would thought, oh, let's put the extra key over here. And then one of my staff had his vehicle uh, literally lifted, taken apart twice within like three months in 2020. So, I, I, I mean, clearly we're aware of these things happening, but people scratch their head and please shine a light on this. People scratch their head and say, what do they want my vehicle? What are they pulling off the car? What is it that's happening yeah. that they want to take? And, you know, you know, why? Why are they doing this? Well, isn't it about fair market trade for parts? It, it, you know, there, there's not even a simple answer. There's a lot of different criminal organizations or uh, juveniles that are using these vehicles for different purposes. So you have the, the first one where auto theft by generally young people that are stealing cars that are using it to commit other crimes. Um, that's one component of it. The other aspect of it, cars are still stolen to be chopped up in vehicle or chopped up in quote unquote chop shops and the vehicles are parted out. And then there's third component is catalytic converters. Your exhaust system is being cut off and the precious metals that are in your catalytic converter, rehibium and palladium, which are at an all time high as far as the cost of that precious metal are being stripped out of there and resold as well. So there is a lot mm. of uh, components in a vehicle that can be used by a profitable criminal network. Well, you know, look, we could so, cer certainly go into the socioeconomical uh, reasons for this, but I want to get down to, you know, what we can do. And look, you have been leading the leading the field in an expert. Your background is absolutely stellar to talk about this, but people wonder, what can we do about the rise in catalytic converter theft? And First of all, it's awareness. If we know exactly what you just said, like there's something of value there, then maybe we will do things differently, don't you think? We will. And, and you brought up a good point. I do want to touch on that briefly is um, what is causing, what's the behaviors of, of the suspects that are stealing? And, and we have a, a place in time right now. We have a lot of disenfranchised youth mm -hmm. that are out of work unemployed uh, social services organizations are not open because of COVID. We really have to invest in, in the kids that are committing crime or the young people that are committing these crimes. And that's going to take some time. And then on the prevention side, your own personal security, your personal protection, as I mentioned earlier, is securing your vehicle in well-lit areas, working with your neighbors, with each other when crimes are, are, are trending in your area to make sure you see something or say something. Take your key fob with you, for goodness sakes. Make sure you don't leave your keys in your car. Um, and have good personal security hygiene. Make sure you're doing all of these prevention techniques so you don't become a victim of a crime. And if you do, call 911 right away to report that crime. You know, I want to get back to what you all stand for and what you're bringing to the forefront. So I want to make sure folks beyond what we're talking about today, go over there and look at NICB, National Insurance Crime Bureau. Go take a look at this. There's going to be a lot of information. We're going to touch upon some of it today. Um, but most importantly, they have a an amazing list of things you can learn, know and then do. Let me ask you this. Is prevention the mother of all things? Are there some things we can do? But even if we can't do it to prevent it, how do we know what the next steps are? 
Yeah. I mean, prevention is the key. I mean, preventing that worst day from happening in someone's life is the key component here is having that good personal security that I mentioned earlier. And then after the fact, after it happens, the first step you do is call 911. You've got to contact local law enforcement so they can document the crime to identify those crime trends. And then also make sure you have the documentation for that insurance claim. If you're going to have a claim, usually through your comprehensive coverage of your insurance, have the documentation so you can report it to your insurance agent to determine if you're going to make that claim or not under your comprehensive policy. So, you know, what you're talking about for me, um, we've done a couple of shows on what's changed for people in terms of how they feel secure. And I'm talking about beyond COVID and your health. I'm talking about other things that you touched upon here. But here's something important. And this is something I had to learn the hard way. I'm a kid from New York. And if I'm in the middle of, you know, a drop down, drag out, you're stealing my car. My first nature is to really be like, no, you're not doing that. But there are things we've learned about what you should do if you are a victim of these crimes, what to do and how quickly to do them, even if you're in an emotional groundswell. So what is your advice to people that are saying, "Okay, wait, this just happened to me. What do I do? Do I go back out? Do I call the police? What do I do? I, I witnessed it. I'm not feeling okay. What do I do? Sure. So first, if you're a victim of a crime in progress and you've got a suspect in front of you that's trying to steal your car, steal your purse, steal your wallet, um, try to remain calm. I know that's really hard, but maintaining your wit about you is key component and cooperate, cooperate, cooperate. Do not try to be what we used to say. Don't try to be a hero. Um, A violent confrontation with a suspect is they're heightened already. So are you. Remain time. Maintain your calmness. Give away your keys. Give away your purse. Give away your wallet and be a good witness in your mind. Try to document from a a mental visualization. Think about what they look like, what they were wearing, how old they are, and what was their last direction to travel once they left the scene. Be a good witness and call 911. And if you have been a victim of the crime, and um, which most people will be struggling with that really post-traumatic stress of that, you will have it. It's it's natural. Um, There's a lot of victim witness programs that local law enforcement and federal law enforcement have that'll help with people that have been victims of crimes. And I highly encourage people to seek those out because people will be traumatized by these events. You know, you're absolutely right about this. There are some of us that think we can stand up. I mean, one of the scariest moments I think of my life was around something like this auto theft. And, you know, I went in my I went in my backpack and I pulled out my little can of whatever. What do we call it? Mace. I don't know what you call it. Mace. That thing that you carry around. And I held it up like Mm. a big warrior and went to spray it and it didn't work. That was one of the scariest moments of my life. But obviously, I got lucky in that event. We're in times now where taking these risks just don't make sense. They don't make sense. Yeah, they don't. No, they really don't cooperate, remain in calmness and just give away whatever they want. Take it. Um, we'll file the insurance claim later. We'll we'll, we'll call law enforcement. But don't uh, don't try to be a hero and think we're going to mm-hmm. confront the suspect. They're heightened uh, and they're scared, too, usually. Um, and they've got emotions running. Just cooperate and give up whatever they want. Um, look, I have sent people to the website, but I want to ask you this question. You know, you're providing, uh, you, you, you know, you're providing just a ton of great information for a time. People want to know, I'm going to do all this thing. I think I've done it all to protect myself, my home. I think my insurance is going to pay for it. Maybe they are. Maybe they don't. What can we tell people to have them raise the bar on their engagement to make sure that all will be well? Yeah, um, 
I, I think what you're talking about here is, is an inventory of your personal well-being when it comes to preventing crime. And if you are a victim of crime, you have the infrastructure in place to support yourself. So it starts with what we talked about in those crime prevention techniques. But also on the back end, if something does happen, you want to go and engage and talk to your insurance agents to make sure you have the coverages that are in place. If you do have a theft or a robbery, it's covered. And that's going to be usually under your comprehensive policy. So I would suggest, in addition to evaluating your personal security and crime prevention up front, also after the fact, um, I would engage with your insurance agent and ensure you have the coverages in place to make sure you are covered if an event does occur. And that'll be a two-pronged approach. You know, uh, thank you for today. Um, uh, I want to ask you this one last question. And for folks out there, go to www.nicb.org. And as I said before, that is National Insurance Crime Bureau. Thank you so much for joining us here today, David. What's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with today? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Pat. Um, We're in very trying times right now. The pandemic has stressed society um, and all of us. And, and, and unfortunately, there are crimes occurring specifically with auto. Please have your good crime prevention uh, techniques in place. Think about your personal security. And uh, if something does happen to you, please call 911, cooperate and be a good witness. Don't try to be a hero and try to prevent that crime from happening if it's in progress. And by the way, this this particular interview came just in time for me. I'm looking for a new place to move to, and I think I have found one. But my friends don't understand why I am persistent to move to a place that has a garage. I'm going to send them this interview. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you, you couldn't have showed up here. And you, honestly, you couldn't have showed up here in, in any more perfect time. They're like, we don't get it. We live here in Bothell, Pacific Northwest. Why do you need a garage? I'm just sending them this interview. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Pat. I really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. And please, folks, when you go to the website, I just got to tell you this. This is more than just auto theft. When you go to this website, there is amazing amount of information. Please be safe, feel safe. Thanks to David and NICB. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Get empowered. Transformation Talk Radio. Good news and powerful news. Dr. Barry Andamarian is joining us here today, Family Director of NESCI and also Lakeisha Dickerson, uh, sickle cell disease patient. And why are we here and what are we talking about? Yes, is it important to receive the vaccine? And, And if so, why is it important? Today, we're going to peel the layers back to find out how the word important might be an understatement for looking deeply down into what we must look at. First of all, doctor, thank you for joining me here today. Lakeisha, thank you so much for joining me here today, both of you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. So COVID-19 has done a wide range of things, has had multi-layer impacts, multi-dimensional impacts. It's also been the lens by which enormous innovations have been made, especially around knowledge, information, and wellness. Let me ask you, doctor, and then Lakeisha, then you too. You know, here we are, Black History Month, and there are opportunities to look at healthcare in the Black community. And this has been important for us here, my family, and what this means. But more importantly, 
the question mark is what is really going on in the black community and especially with when we talk about something like sickle sickle cell disease but doctor for you there used to be a light shined on this now there needs to be a floodlight shined on this what are you seeing and what is happening with the rise of importance in this conversation well you know uh, specifically with sickle cell disease and you're right i think that the community um there was a lot more awareness about sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait um in the 60s and 70s the black panthers had uh, large movements to get uh, people in the community tested to see if they were a carrier for sickle cell disease. Um, and, and a lot of the advocacy and awareness and sort of black power behind sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait really waned over the subsequent decades. And I think that that has contributed significantly to the disparities in healthcare um, because there's just not an awareness not only within the community that's most affected, but even amongst the medical community. You know, we learn about it in medical school as an example of a, of a, a genetic disease that can be passed from parents to child. But then, you know, because it's a relatively rare disease, you know, the average physician in the U.S. doesn't really come into contact with people with sickle cell often. Um, right. So I think that's contributed to disparities. And then lastly, I'll say that, you know, there really wasn't um, an interest from the research standpoint or the drug development standpoint uh, in sickle cell disease. But the good news is that that has changed. Um, there are now um, three times as many drugs available for sickle cell disease that I can offer my patients. Up until three years ago, I only had one option and now I have four. So it's, it's an exciting time um, for me as someone who cares for people affected by this condition. And it's finally giving um, people who live with it options to improve their health. And there's a reason both of you are here. You know, Lakeisha Dickerson, first of all, experienced healthcare professional, you are in the trenches. Um, and you also know what it's like to battle the devastating effects of SED. But more importantly, it's one thing to battle the effects. It's another thing to battle the effects in a healthcare system that may or may not play on a level playing field. And there's a reason you're here today. What would you like to shine the light on here? Um, my, my main purpose is that sickle cell disease, it should not have you to the point where you can't do anything. You mm. have sickle cell, sickle cell does not have you. And we can be strong and we can fight and we can overcome all hurdles and obstacles and do whatever we want to do and be whoever we want to be. Now, there are many conversations, right? And I'm so glad both of you have come to the forefront on this. There are many conversations that people have about COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccine. But we're talking about a, a population of people that already have uh, SED. We're talking about this population and yet what are you seeing in terms of people rushing ahead to get the COVID-19 vaccine? And what can we do to really better communicate the importance? Okay, I'll take that one. So uh, from a clinical perspective, you know, um, we have been very concerned about as, as a medical community about 
the seriousness of someone with sickle cell disease um, getting severe COVID-19 infection if they, if they catch the virus. And that has a lot to do with the fact that people with sickle cell disease have um, reduced sort of immune function. They, they, their immune systems inherently aren't as strong as everybody else's. And they tend to have a lot of um, lung problems. Um, and you, you remember that, you know, COVID-19 is a, is a virus, it's an infection, and it, it has a lot of um, effects on the lungs. And that's why people get so sick primarily. And so um, we're really scared, to be honest with you, about how severely COVID-19 can impact this subset of the community. And so um, I'm really advocating all the experts that I know of who treat individuals with sickle cell disease are strongly advocating that anyone with sickle cell disease get vaccinated as soon as they're eligible to do so in their in their communities. Um, there's, there's distrust. We know about it. We know mm-hmm. that sickle cell disease predominantly affects people uh, of black and brown skin. And there's um, a long history of mistrust in the medical community. And a lot of that is, is well-grounded. I mean, there's the Tuskegee experiment. There's the Henrietta Lacks story. There's lots of things that we don't even talk about that have happened. Um, but I can tell you that getting education is critical, getting the facts is critical, not just relying on social media, um, going to the CDC website, getting information that is, is grounded in science um, is, is imperative. And I can tell you, I'm a black woman. Um, I've been in medicine for 20 years. Um, and I can swear to you that medicine remains a profession that ultimately just wants to help people. I got the vaccine. My kids will get the vaccine when they're eligible. My parents have gotten it. We're not going to be able to effectively fight this pandemic if we aren't all willing to roll up our sleeves and either protect ourselves or protect others who are vulnerable. Yeah, wow. And, you know, doctor, you just said it. And one of the things, Lakeisha, I want you to talk to because you are really right down there every day. You know, I spent 10 years studying the the meaning and the consequences of trust and mistrust. And, you know, I come from sort of a background growing up in the projects in the Bronx. So I come from a place where, boy, you had to have some street smarts to know what you trust and don't trust. But this is one of these things that has a long history. And so I want to ask you, Lakeisha, what do you say to to people? What do you say to them to help encourage them to really take the actions of what is available to them to keep them well? Um, I will go ahead and admit um, honestly and candidly that I myself I may be a member of the medical community, but I am a sickle cell member of the sickle cell community and uh, African-American woman first. Mm-hmm. I do have, I have had mistrust um, in healthcare providers in the healthcare system. I have been treated like less than because people just assumed when I came into the emergency room for a pain crisis, I am a drug seeker or I don't have any insurance. They didn't even know me. They've made assumptions about me. So I have learned to overcome those biases. And I do have certain medical providers that I trust. But my biggest thing is that you have to be your own advocate. You have to speak up for yourself. You know your body better than anyone else out there. And that's one of the things I bring to my practice. When patients tell me stuff, um, tell me things about their body, I, I listen to them. Because you know your body better than anybody else. 
So you have to be your own best advocate when it comes down to trust versus mistrust. If you feel that something is not right, then speak up. Ask for a rationale for why you're receiving the treatment that you're receiving. As of COVID-19 and the vaccine, I definitely had some skepticism at first, but I took the time to read the literature and do the work and get educated and make sure I knew all the facts before I made a decision about vaccination, because ultimately it's a personal decision. Yeah, boy, you said it right there. And you're right about this. There is information for all of us to really take responsibility for our own well-being. And you know, this is not an easy hill to overcome. To to overcome. I mean, this is one of these things where you nailed it. It's a personal decision. It's a heart-based decision, but yet it's grounded in the amount of information and knowledge that we can acquire. And let's talk to that. You all have created ways for people to get educated. And doctor, where is the best place people can go for that information? Yeah, so people can go to two different websites. The first is called sicklecellspeaks.com. And the second one is the National Sickle Cell Disease Association of America's website. Uh, It's sicklecelldisease.org. So sicklecellspeaks.com and sicklecelldisease.org. I want to ask you each one last question, and thank you for being here today. I'd love to know from each of you, and um, let's start with you, doctor, what your personal message is. What is the message you want to leave us with today? Um, I want to leave everybody out there with a message that, um, for the first time, I think in, in, (laughs) in, in eternity, we have a common enemy across the globe Mm. and it's going to take a common, a common spirit, uh, and a, and a common, um, goodwill to combat it. So do your part. And if that means getting vaccinated, not just because you think you're at high risk, um, but but you're going to do it for someone else that you love or that elderly person you pass by in the grocery store. That's the kind of spirit we need to go forward with. Mm. Thank you so much. Lakeisha, how about you? What is your personal message? I, I completely second that. Make sure that even if you decide not to get vaccinated, make sure that you wear your mask, you social distance, you wash your hands, and you be kind to other people because mm. you may you may be protecting that elderly family member, or like Dr. Andamarium said, that patient in the grocery store that has a compromised immune system. We just have to all do our part in the pandemic to eradicate this awful virus. And it's never been more important than it is today, especially with what we're seeing at the variants that are coming out. I want to thank you both for being warriors and champions and speaking out and speaking up. Thank you so much to both of you. And thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. All right, everybody, please, please look at SickleCellSpeaks.com or SickleCellDisease.org. Let's get educated. Let's take action. We'll be right back. TransformationTalkRadio.com. As somebody that lived on the western part of the state of New Jersey, we always had the option, do we go to a doctor? Do we go to a hospital? Do we go to a children's hospital in New Jersey? Or do we just hop over to Philadelphia? 
Well, I live so far west, hopping over to Philadelphia, that was the thing to do. And there are several reasons. Today, you're going to find out about why one of them is. Dr. Jonathan Chen joining me here today, Chief of Surgery in the Cardiac Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And many of you have heard me talk about my family history um, in the world of cardiac, heart, disease, all through my family. Why is this important to me? Because of the breakthroughs. One in every 120 babies in the United States is born with heart disease. But what are we doing? What are the innovations? And I will tell you that they are very, very busy at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and so is Dr. Chen. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm not kidding. Um, as a matter of fact, <laughs> um, my best friend's brother just hopped over to Philadelphia to get eye surgery. But, you know, putting that aside, I come from a family where when you say the heart or heart disease, every one of us sit up, lost several family members early on. But here's the question I want to ask you, Dr. Chen, you've dedicated a life to this. You've dedicated a life to solutions. And I want to ask you this question. In your tenure so far, what have you seen in innovation that you're most excited about today? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think the uh, one of the things I think you're highlighting about the big centers that are, you know, across the river uh, from Jersey is that, you know, we have, uh, you know, this comprehensive group of people who are kind of firing on all cylinders. And so, you know, when I look at heart disease in children, for example, I think the biggest innovations uh, procedurally are definitely in the operating room where we've been over decades, uh, you know, uh, refining and miniaturizing the instrumentation and the circuitry that we use so we can help smaller and smaller babies. So the other day I did a open heart procedure in a 1.7 kilo baby. That's something that we wow. would not have even entertained probably 20 years ago. Mm. Similarly, in the catheter realm, the catheter folks are doing just amazing things, in particular in the last five to 10 years with transcatheter valves. So these are valve replacement options that can be done without an operation, where the valve is sort of scrunched down on a catheter and, and um, placed all the way into the heart and deployed there. That's what Mick Jagger had about five years ago in the aortic mm -hmm. position. And now, those two are being applied to children, and that's something that the interventional group at CHOP is actually quite famous for doing. I will say that one of the things uh, uh, that is uh, amazing to me are just these um, areas of discovery that you wouldn't necessarily have anticipated. So, for example, there's about a seven-year-old program here at CHOP that's um, interested in the lymphatic system. It grew out of uh, one of our interventional cardiologist uh, ideas, and that has become this, uh, you know, beacon. It's the only um, program of its kind in the world. And so we got patients from all over the world for that. And as it's turning out, the, the implications of lymphatic diseases as they relate to cardiac are actually quite substantial, quite profound. And we're just on the cusp of understanding that. And that group is, you know, making discoveries every day. But I will say that as we look into the future, one of the things that is, um, I think, part and parcel of most of the major children's hospitals in the world and sort of an obligation that we will need to carry with us in the next several decades is um, leveraging uh, our understanding of genetics. So there is, you can run these days, a thing that's called a whole genome sequence where you take a patient's peripheral blood and you can match it against all that, you know, we know the whole human genome and we're discovering new things every day in the genes. 
I think our obligation is to um, collaborate with all these centers to create basically a library. And so you can imagine a, a version of this in the future where a baby's born, we take the peripheral blood, run a whole genome and cross it sort of like ancestry.com. You cross it against the library and you say, what, what is, are the risks? And it should be able to spit out something that says, you know, your risk of, you know, kidney disease of your lifetime is X. Your risk of having serious heart disease related to your valves are, is Y. And then, you know, the theory would be that we would, we would never have an undiagnosed child with a two mm-hmm. who walks around with undiagnosed heart disease. It's really quite remarkable. And that's, that's not as far away as you think. You know, if, you, if we can leverage things like artificial intelligence that can look at, you know, billions and billions of uh, gene uh, combinations and permutations, it could be quite powerful. And that's really exciting when you think about the future of this. And, you know, this is why I ask you that question, Dr. Chen, because, you know, first and foremost, you know, when I think about what the innovations are in even short periods of time, the bottom line to what you do and your team does is saving lives. And and we're talking about scenarios where that would not have been an option not too long ago, right? And the question, right? And so what we're seeing perhaps is more and more children being born with congenital heart disease, but also we're talking about more and more solutions and possibilities of lives saved, right? Um, Tell us about the innovation of, you know, the cardiac uh, catheterization, because I think many folks understand a little bit about when you say the word cardiac, but they don't quite understand this innovation. And it's really Mm -hmm. groundbreaking. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so these are, um, we call them interventional cardiologists. And we work very closely with them. They, um, people probably have had an adult friend or family member who's had an adult cardiac catheterization. So these are small catheters that are um, inserted either through the in adults in the groin vessels or the wrist. And in kids, we also include the neck vessels. And they can provide a wealth of information for us. So diagnostically, they're important because they can give us an understanding of the pressures inside the heart. They can measure flow of the blood inside the heart. And when they inject a little contrast material, they can give us pictures, so sort of a roadmap of, for example, for me, of what I'm going to repair. Now, as important, if not more important, they can also be interventional. And that means that they can, there are certain catheters that have little balloons on the tips of them that can enlarge areas that are too small or valves that are too small. They can place stents, as you've probably heard in adults, the people get coronary stents all the time. These are just like those. They look a little bit like uh, Chinese finger traps. So they they um, more durably enlarge an area that's small. And then probably the most exciting is what we were talking about earlier, these transcatheter valves. And those are truly game changing because they will hopefully avoid the need for future operations for children. So they're, um, they're the kind of thing that uh, we hope would be eliminating uh, you know, the need for an, uh, an operation in the future. Yeah. Um, and so the catheterization people, you know, they're, they're doing mm-hmm. new stuff every, every day. One of the challenges for us, to be honest, is that the, the, you know, when you compare the regular marketplace, if you will, to the need, the need for adults is in the hundreds of thousands of people who need catheterization, you know, advances. The need for children is just a fraction of that. So it's hard to uh, get the, to get industry interested in miniaturizing their, their therapies because the, the actual marketplace is not that big. So one of our challenges is how do we take some of the clever, the cleverest uh, adult technology and how can we adapt it to be appropriate in children? And that's actually what we're doing right now. We have a new valve center where one of the initiatives is just that, is just how do we transform the technology from adults to make it something that we can apply for children? 
And I think what's so super important about this, Dr. Chen, is, is uh, several things. But one of the things really that I zoomed in on, especially because this is really personal to my family, um, is that the number of babies born in the United States, right? And I don't remember, maybe 80, 85%, right? Um, born now with CHD, now live to at least age 18. And people say, only 18. And I say, well, wait a minute. Think about the innovations that can happen. If you, if you, if you put a marker down today's date, right, in 2021, and you mark it out 18 years, now look back 18 years at the innovations that we have done and learned. Clearly, this is the possibility for much more, given that folks are able to extend their lives, but even more importantly, that you all can extend your innovations in this area, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, even, you know, there's a moving target, right, which is that technology evolves as we're doing these things. Medications get better, imaging gets better, and so forth. Um, the statistic these days, which I think you're probably aware of, is that there are more adults alive with repaired and unrepaired congenital heart disease than there are yeah. children with that problem. Mm -hmm. And that's new. That's not mm -hmm. something that was true 20 years ago. Uh, and if they, you know, we're a victim of our own success in that way, our challenge is, is now, okay, here are a group of patients who in the old days would not have survived infancy. And now, you know, they're, they're adults and what do we do to, to best, uh, you know, leverage our technology to let them avoid operations, for example, let them live their lives as, you know, a normal life. That's also a challenge. Like what are the, what, what if they want to get pregnant? What if they, uh, you know, how they're going to be, afflicted with all the same things that adults get, right? They, they're going to be risk for cancer and coronary disease and like, how do we manage that? And so there's actually a challenge to our field right now to train uh, physicians in what we call ACHD, which is adult congenital heart disease management. And that incorporates both a knowledge of the congenital part of that and also the adult side of things. And it's a, you know, it's a big challenge for the future because there's going to be a, hopefully, right? If we do our job right, there's going to be many, many, many more adults even than even now. And I think you're right. I think the, the future is bright in the sense that, um, you know, take the Mick Jagger example. Transcatheter York valves weren't even, where they weren't even like a, a twinkle in the eye 20 years ago. And now that technology has almost supplanted open aortic valve replacements for open cardiac surgery. And that's in the space of 15 years. So, uh, you know, in the time you're talking about, 18 years, zero to 18 time marker zero now by 2039 or whatever that would be. Uh, you know, we, the, the landscape could be completely different in terms of the technology available to, to change the face of, of heart disease. Before we get too far here, how do people find out more about this? And this is important that we share this information because you all have done a great job at educating the public. How do they find out? Uh, you know, a, a nice place to start is our, our, our own website is, is uh, a good informative um, starting point. That's um, heart.chop.edu, heart.chop.edu. And uh, it has, it's a portal to other places that has lots of other information. There's lots of information, uh, both generically about heart disease, about very specific kinds of heart disease, uh, things that you can get plugged into at CHOP, uh, second opinions. And um, in particular, the fetal section is very important, I think, for parents who are uh, receiving early news of heart disease and what does it mean. Uh, that's a good uh, source for them. And then not to be discounted um, for those families, and most of them know this, but those families with children who have heart disease, uh, many of the family support groups that are online are extremely helpful at um, you know, collating and aggregating a lot of the information that's out there and that there's quite a few of them that are very uh, informative. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. You know, this idea of information and knowledge, it's so important and powerful. Thank you for giving hope to those that did not have hope. Very few years ago, many people did not have hope in this area. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen. What's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with today? Um, I think live your best live your best self and uh, be aware of the heart disease problem. Uh, and if you are worried about that, certainly see a specialist, but the future is bright uh, for, for, the, uh, for the future of our treatment of this problem. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen, everybody. Please check it out and make sure that you pass this information on. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. <laughs> 